The Behavioral Corner is produced in cooperation with Retreat Behavioral Health, where healing happens. Hi and welcome, I'm Steve Martorano and this is The Behavioral Corner. You're invited to hang with us as we discuss the ways we live today, the choices we make, the things we do, and how they affect our health and well-being. So you're on the corner, the behavioral corner. Please hang around a while. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to the behavioral corner. It's me. I'm always hanging. Steve Martorano. What we talk about on the behavioral corner, if you're just finding out about us, is, well, everything. Really, we're a podcast about everything because everything affects our behavioral health. It's made possible by our underwriting partners, Retreat Behavioral Health. You'll find out more about them down the road. Uh, October the 10th is designated each and every year as National Mental Health Awareness Day. So who do you go to talk to about something like that? But the executive director of NAMBI, and for those of you who've never heard of NAMBI, they are the National uh, Alliance on Mental Illness, and their executive director is our guest, Kyle Carter. Hi, Kyle. Thanks for joining us. Good afternoon. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Uh, So, okay, we have a national day. That's very good. Uh, Dedicated to awareness, which is a obvious term. Uh, From my perspective, from just a layperson's perspective, and given media coverage and all the talk about mental mental health uh, crises, uh, spikes in anxiety, and depression and drug addiction and on and on, exacerbated by a pandemic, of course. It seems to me there's an abundance of awareness about mental illness and mental health. So I want to ask you, as someone who's in the field there, um, what are, as a society, how would you characterize what we're doing well and uh, what more needs to be done? Ooh, again, loaded question. Um, I think, what are we doing well? I think as a society and as a generation, um, the concept of mental health and wellness is pretty much embedded. Um, I think social media has aided in that process. So I think we're doing that well as far as creating awareness and understanding the feelings when we feel them, so to speak. So when we feel anxiety, when we feel depression, all those things, we're able to at least engage in the conversation. Mm -hmm. So that's what we're doing well, the awareness part. Um, what we're not doing so well is understanding the value of therapeutic supports, understanding that therapy is incredibly important and that you can't always manage everything yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, And also as a culture, a working culture in this country, we work, 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 but very rarely is rest or self-care or wellness really embedded as a part of our lives. So I think that's the other part. Um, Besides accepting therapy as something that can really be a useful intervention for us, but also embedding wellness and balance, work-life balance um, into our lives are the other piece that I think we can all do better as as a society. Yeah, it's a great answer Uh, because awareness is a kind of uh, catch-all phrase. If I understand what you're saying about here's what we're doing well, we've taken mental illness out of the shadows where we didn't talk about it. We never even spoke about it mm-hmm. uh, to a, to a place now where, as you say, we can discuss it openly as a a, a, a mental health issue. Absolutely. Okay. Um, so that leads me directly to you know uh, what it took to get it out of the shadows, and that leads to the stigma of mental illness. How would you characterize 
I know it's improved somewhat in terms of stigmatizing people, but how how much more do we need to go to to get people from stop being terrified and stigmatize this disorder? So I think, you know, to your point, we have come a long way. You know, when you look back in older times, folks that had mental health issues were being treated in in closed rooms and you didn't talk about it um, because the education wasn't there. Um, Well, where we see it sitting down today, the education is somewhat there. We're learning more and more about various mental illness and abnormalities. Um, But where we have to go is the education has to continue in all spaces, all continuums from zero on to 100. Uh, We have to continue to invest dollars and invest the time equity and invest the thought leadership into understanding all the different types of mental illnesses that exist and how it affects everyone. Because we're all none of us are monoliths, so it affects each one of us a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. So just investing the time and thought leadership into understanding all those pieces. Yeah, we could spend a lot of time. uh, Maybe we can at some point talking about humanity's relationship to mental illness over the years uh it was not relatively speaking that long ago mm-hmm. hundreds hundreds of years when people were consigned to horrible asylums thrown away and uh you know referred to as lunatics mm-hmm. and that was the end of it out of sight out of mind uh, things have changed dramatically in, in in that period in this period of time. But that's a, we can we can talk a little bit more about that later. Tell me about NAMBI and your role. How long have you been uh, involved in NAMBI? So NAMI Philadelphia. Um, I've been the executive director as of yesterday, six months. Oh, congratulations! Uh, so thank you so much. It was my anniversary. Uh, so uh, NAMI is a national organization with over six hundred affiliates. Um, so I've been in my role. It's been in existence in Philadelphia for about five years. I'm the per- first person of color to uh, to lead NAMI Philadelphia, which is, um, I think, noteworthy for uh, a city of Philadelphia that's very much uh, full of black and brown people. So, again, to have that representation and hopefully that programmatic equity and health equity, I think, is incredibly important. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as you know, some of the things that I bring to the role, I previously served in the city leadership for DBHIDS. I've been a professor of psychology myself a licensed clinician, um, and I've held other director-level positions in the mental health space. So I bring a world of experience um, and I'm blessed to be able to bring that experience to this role. Um, As far as NAMI and some of the programmatic things that we offer, we offer everything from support groups, and that could be grief, gun violence, LGBTQI+, um, youth, um, and a number of uh, BIPOC uh, supports. There's a number of the support groups that we offer. Um, we offer ending the silent suicide prevention program. Um, we offer NAMI on campus, in which we're actually in several universities throughout the city, in which the, the students are able to mirror NAMI's board and NAMI's composition in order to offer direct service resources to the students right there on campus. Mm-hmm. Um, we offer crisis intervention training to uh, city police and other law enforcement, along with a plethora of other supports that if I start going all of them, we'll be here for a really long time. But I think when it comes to mental health and mental illness, NAMI is really positioned as a, kind of the North Star of offering um, a wide variety and a diverse variety of supports uh, to hopefully uh, affect and cure all. Oh, so clearly NAMI has a, a, a broad uh, series of goals. You outlined a couple on your uh, website, NAMI. By the way, it's a terrific resource. Thank uh, you. There'll be, there'll be a link uh, on the podcast so you guys can access it. And you mentioned education. Uh, you mentioned your role as advocates for understanding about this. Uh, let's get back to the stigma of it. How problematic is that 
at this late date. People still have weird ideas about mental illness, don't they? Absolutely. Um, you know, to your point, you used the verbiage lunatics earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the phrasing retardation and things of mm-hmm. that nature was used still to this day, but very recently. And what those things essentially do is it casts a really negative dispersion around those that are affected by mental illness, caregivers and those directly affected. So what it more often than not does is stop people from actually looking into meaningful care. When we talked about earlier about equity and those that are deciding, I don't want to get a therapist because it's that dark stigma, that dark cloud um, that sits over it. So I think it deters people from really looking into meaningful care to hopefully support their mental illness and the various challenges. Now, I want to take a look at three areas of society and how they're uh, how they manage these things. Well, three or four, but first there's people of color. Um, does that constituency still have this sort of attitude that mental health treatment and care is for people of means um, and somehow they may shy away from it, either lack of resources or a sense of, come on, man, just man up. You're depressed. Mm-hmm. Of course mm-hmm. you're depressed. Things are mm-hmm. bad here, right? Uh, mm-hmm. do, do, is that that's still uh, uh, prevalent in that community? Absolutely. So what I will, I will, I have to preface it by saying, obviously, as a man of color, we are not a monolith, so I don't speak for everyone, but I can speak from myself and my professional experience um, that I don't necessarily know if the therapeutic supports are for people of means. I think that the more pervasive issue of why people of color do not seek it is the weakness piece. You're perceived as being weak if you go with a therapist. Man up, the man up thing. And that's for all genders. It doesn't necessarily have to be for black men per se, but I think it uniquely affects black men. It's also characteristic of other ethnic groups. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, you know, an Italian-American family, uh, when I was growing up, I mean, the idea that someone would be seeing a therapist was not... It wasn't so much stigmatized as it was never thought of. Nobody mm-hmm. it was in therapy. I just mentioned people of color because across the board, as you know, in healthcare delivery and treatment, uh, they they lag behind for a multitude of reasons. Let's talk about um, the 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 police. I mean, I think most people understand now that mental illness can be treated and that mm-hmm. you can get and that you can get help. Uh, but there's a point at which mental illness intersects with society that precedes all of that. And it is very often at the point of a, of a police presence. Mm -hmm. I mean, police see more mental health issues than psychiatrists. Mm -hmm. I I would say, or, or, or or they're a close second anyway. Um, Mm -hmm. How well do you think uh, in general, I know it's in a general statement, uh, Mm -hmm. police are being trained to, to understand what's going on in a, uh, in a situation like that where a mental issue may be at play? Well, I'm going to start by, you know, uh, unabashedly giving NAMI a pat on the back, along with Philadelphia police and fire departments and things of that nature for instituting things like something that we do, which is crisis intervention training. And that is a proactive approach uh, to work with law enforcers that are going to intersect with those that have mental health and behavioral health challenges. And we offer different training and scenarios and things like that to arm them with some strategies so that when they intersect, they're able to handle it appropriately and preferably without violence or incident. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think based on integrating tactics and interventions like that, we're doing better than we used to. So let's talk about Philadelphia, where where Mm -hmm. your chapter is located. 
Uh, with regard to cooperation with the authorities, it sounds like the police are on board in a training sense. Do uh, to uh, mental health crisis counselors role with any police that you know on a regular basis in Philadelphia? Yes. So there are, um, as part of CIT, um, an associated programming, there are CIT officers um, that support the different districts all throughout the city. We're offering different trainings and um, supporting the cops as they interface. So there's ongoing trainings, ongoing strategies, ongoing interventions that are being poured into these distant districts. That way law enforcement actually have some degree of something to pull from when they're thrown into some of these very unique and sometimes very dangerous situations. Yeah. Yeah. And for those people who think that this is solely uh, a benefit for the disturbed person or the mentally ill person, it also helps policing. Um, because, I mean, you know, anything that will lower the threshold of violence and and death, maybe, is is a good thing. I, I think more police departments should be actively involved that's sort of a that's sort of a mission across the board nationally with namby right to, to get to get police to work and then i guess the final uh, there are so many other aspects of society but the family becomes a uh, a major component in this uh, mental illness is a uh, family disease in, in a sense and there can be tremendous collateral damage from someone who has uh, mental health issues among their family and loved ones what kind of support is out there for families with people suffering from mental illness? Absolutely. And uh, you, you raised a, a very important point that mental illness and behavioral health challenges, that affects the whole person. And part of the whole person is family, it's the community. Um, so I think as far as NAMI um, in particular, uh, we offer a number of different programs. So I mentioned, I will mention the support groups that we offer um, for families. Um, we offer some of our signature programming, family to family, peer to peer. Um, so we offer family to family, peer to peer, and those are NAMI signature programs specifically embedded to work with families that have caregivers or family members affected by mental illness. And we offer uh, trainings, ongoing trainings, as well as a support group format to help support families in the ongoing battle. Because again, nobody's a monolith. It affects families differently. So what we try to do is just arm families with strategies, interventions, scenarios, um, and everything we can add to their tool belt to deal with all the very difficult um, dynamic challenges that come with working with someone and living someone with mental health challenges. So someone listening to this who who might be uh, confronting a loved one with with a, a mental illness problem, they call someone like Namby and say, I, I need to talk to some people. Is that how it would work? Yes. So what you could do, the, the best way to do it is to go to our website, uh, NAMI Philly. So that's N-A-M-I-P-H-I-L-L-Y dot org, NAMI Philly dot org. Uh, you can go in and go to the content. So first you can go to the different tabs about us, and then you can also learn about our particular program and get a bit more broader um, understanding. Once you feel like you're interested in, you would just simply go to the contact us page and we would reach out to you and talk to you about our different support groups and hopefully you being able to join. These support groups are led by um, mental health professionals, or are they just peer? Are they all peer to peer? They are. They are uh, led by uh, professionals as well as those with lived experience. Okay. Um, And I just want to just mention, most importantly, they are all free. Yeah, they're free. (laughs) I was just going to. I was going to get to that. Um, Let's talk uh, a bit about um, the. I mean, the effect of the pandemic has 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 been negative across the board. Uh, uh, touching every aspect of our lives, but it has de- has had a devastating effect on 
our mental well-being. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you seeing more young people uh, or, or parents of young people talking about mental illness among younger people? Yes, because they were, the, unfortunately, the pandemic created just such a dark cyclical effect when it comes to isolation by both the adults and the youth. So then the youth turn to social media, but you still don't have that person-to-person, in-person interaction. So that leads to some sometimes some mental illness and mental uh, health challenges. And just that lack of in-person social communicative experience also adds additional challenge. More often than not, the additions of stress for parents that more often not had to essentially become teacher assistants because of the transition to uh, home-based learning as opposed to being um, in brick and mortar. So all those things, the isolation, the different stressors on parents, um, and the lack of social communicative uh, situations for youth by being confined at home, all kind of brought together a really difficult challenge for two to three years, and we're still trying to get out of it, unfortunately. Our guest is uh, Kyle Carter. He is the executive director of NAMBI, the National Alliance on mental illness, uh, on this uh, Mental uh, Health Awareness Day, October the tenth, uh, Kyle, uh, do, do you agree with uh, uh, with other people who've looked at the situation of social media and said that uh, while there's much that uh, we can benefit from social media, it also has a downside, and it can ironically isolate people rather than bring them together. Are you seeing that among people who come for help? at Namby, a kind of sense of isolation? Absolutely. I think there's a lot of isolation. Um, so then people are very much stricken with the desire to kind of follow others um, with different ideals and things of that nature. And that just unfortunately leads to a lot of challenges, a lot of anxiety, a lot of stressors, a lot of depression, because again, there's that lack of social communicative experience, being in person, talking to people, they're just simply on a computer, uh, more often than not, not directly communicating with anyone. So because of that lack, you just, you're kind of just led by just words as opposed to any kind of substantive action. In the treatment of substance abuse, uh, the uh, clinicians and the, tr- and the treatment providers often use the term co-occurring disorders, and they are almost always of of a mental health variety. They seem to go hand in hand. Uh, Two things. One, uh, with regard to substance abuse sufferers, uh, NAMBI can direct them for help, but you don't directly provide substance abuse counseling, right? So excellent question. So yes, NAMI, one of the uh, key resources that we offer is our warm line. A warm line is not a crisis line, but what it is is a essentially a resource hotline in which we will connect folks with various resources around the city. Uh, so whether it's other providers, uh, whether it's the Philadelphia crisis line if needed, 988 if needed, um, any type of uh, substance abuse centers if needed, any all those different resources we have at our disposal that we have available that we can connect you to. Um, so while we're not a direct provider, uh, we are someone uh, that can uh, direct you to resources as needed. And the other area where there's a pronounced intersection between mental illness um, and society is homelessness. How? What? I know there's there's no number you can put on this, but how large a problem is the is mental illness among the homeless population in your guesstimate? I'll just rather than utilizing a nominal figure, I'll just say it's a huge problem. 
Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's a huge problem. We know that homelessness throughout the city, and there's you know there's areas like Kensington in which it is incredibly pronounced. Um, and again, it uh, you know when we speak about co-occurring, we see you know the addiction and the substance abuse crisis that really exists in a pronounced nature in the Kensington area, but all across the city that when you have homelessness, um, you see depression, you see substance abuse, see all these things um, kind of compile and bring themselves together to just create a really dangerous situation. So there is a huge intersection between mental illness and homelessness and substance abuse. And it's a huge problem specifically in the city. Yeah. Kyle, you have a, as you mentioned earlier, a, a very uh, extensive and deep background in, in this field, but you didn't always have your attention focused on this. I wonder if you uh, have the same experience I have had the more I learn about mental illness. I find myself now being far less quick to judge a behavior I see um, as, you know, the work of a bad person or, well, that guy's drunk. We all see the videos that are posted of people behaving badly uh, or are inebriated to the point where they're fighting, I, I tend to find myself now going, that person has a problem. Mm-hmm. They're just they're not just jerks. Mm-hmm. They may mm-hmm. be, but they're jerks with problems. <laughs> that could be a separate issue. <laughs> I mean, you, I know you have grown to understand that. That's really the core issue here is to get people to look at these behaviors and say they need help. Yes, to have people view people that have mental illnesses and challenges as humans. Flawed humans. Um, And I'll tell you, one of the reasons why I pursued this work is because I come from lived experience. My mother was stricken with clinical depression. Mm -hmm. Um, So around 11 or 12, that's something that we had to do with. I was raised in a single parent household. Um, So that's something at, at the age of 11 and 12, I got to see my superhero become a very flawed person. And we had to work through that. And I had to become very mature very quickly to help yeah, support her yeah. through that and, and the different addictions that came with that. So yes, you know, my, my own experience is, you know, it does humanize you, but again, it's removing the stigma as a society and saying people as humans and not simply identifying them by their challenge. Yeah. It's easy to say that this is a character flaw and dismiss it as such. Um, and it is not, it's a disease. It is a brain chemistry disease, uh, a group of them. Finally in the workforce, one of the reasons people would be reluctant to mention that they're having mental health issues is the fear of losing their job. Can NAMBI advise people on what their rights are, uh, employment and work rights, uh, or direct them in places where they can find out? Yeah, so we would more likely do the latter, which is, mm-hmm. is which is directing them, say, if we're looking at the area of rights and legal supports, community legal service or something of that nature. Um, so we would be the director, kind of a navigator in that sense to ensure people have the right resource to learn all the information that they possibly need in their situation. And there are far more protections than they probably are aware of, right? Oh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And again, education is the central uh, point of all of the mental illness, mental health, and behavioral health challenges. So it's important to be fully educated on your rights um, and everything associated with that. Yeah. Uh, Kyle Carter, thanks. This last thing on your website, you have a mission statement. Uh, and yours is very, uh, very clear and very to the point. You talk about the goal being in regard to mental illness, mental health, mm-hmm. uh, prevention, and cure. Mm-hmm. Now, I know you think these are doable, but Really, prevention and cure of mental illness, pretty lofty. Very lofty goals indeed. And I think when we, you know, we have to be reasonable when we think about the phrase cure, the cure for mental health challenges and mental illness is education. 
Mm-hmm. So all of our advocacy, all of our programs have one central focus, and that's educating the public. So I think if we're properly educated for our rights, for the different interventions and strategies to help us push through some of these, these mental illness challenges, that's when we can progress as a society. So when we think of cure, we think of education. Yeah, we all get better. It's it's, it's, it's absolutely doable. Kyle Carter from uh, NAMBI. Thanks so much. Uh, people want more information. They should refer to the website. We'll have a link for that. Uh, how are you guys funded, incidentally? Donations or what? Yeah, normally uh, sponsorships and some small fundraising. But again, we have our big walk this weekend on October 7th. Yes. Um, and then we have some ongoing things as well. Feel free to go to the website to uh, you know take a look at what we're doing and feel free to donate as well. Uh, but yeah, just the, the generosity of, of sponsors as well as the community. Uh, thanks so much. I hope you can come back and see us from uh, time to time here on the corner. You're a great resource. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time. And thank you guys for yours as well. It's the Behavioral Corner. You'll find us wherever finer podcasts are being dispersed. Uh, when you do, uh, check us out. We got all the shows up like a library. You can go back and look at some of the old ones. If you like it, subscribe, follow us, like us. We're on all those platforms. See you next time on the Behavioral Corner. Take care. Millions of Americans are negatively affected daily by their mental health. Retreat has served the community for over 10 years, offering comprehensive mental health programming through our mental health division, Synergy Health Programs. To learn more about Synergy, please reach out today at 855-802-6600. That's it for now. And make us a habit, hanging out at the Behavioral Corner. And when we're not hanging, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter on the Behavioral Corner.